Investigating the geography, geology and fauna of Victoria Land to the north and east of Scott's base in McMurdo Sound. The six men were unexpectedly trapped for the whole winter of 1912, when sea ice made it impossible to pick them up. They should have died from exposure or starvation. Instead, they dug a tiny ice cave and survived by eating such delicacies as half-digested fish that they found in the bellies of the few seals they were able to kill. Despite scurvy and dysentery, none of them died. None of them even went insane, though it was close. The following spring, presumed dead, they dug themselves out and sledged the 230 miles home. However, not telling the main polar story really was impossible. As you will see, Cherry's connection to that tragedy was so acutely personal that it coloured everything else in his life, including his memories. But I had worse problems than what to omit. I kept finding material that was directly relevant, yet missing even from Cherry's great compendium of facts. And, as the extra details piled up, it became clear that something else was missing too. Dialogue. Whispered conversations began to float off every new document I read. I found myself shuffling closer, eavesdropping, and scribbling down what I thought these men were saying to one another. Soon, despite a desk overflowing with notes and drafts, I had no idea how to proceed, so I took a break and picked up Beryl Bainbridge's novel The Birthday Boys. It was a revelation. There are five chapters, each narrated by one of the men who died on Scott's final march, Bainbridge puts you inside their heads. By the time I put down her book, I knew that mine could no longer be a straightforward history. Sure, I needed the historian's benefit of hindsight. I also needed the novelist's benefit of insight. I would have to tell Cherry's story in his own voice, as he had done. But I would have to use dialogue too, really imagine these men, and in a strange way reinvent Cherry himself. The Cherry of 1922 was thorough, wrote beautifully, and tried hard to be objective. His book is indispensable because, even though the main facts can be found in other sources, sometimes only in other sources, Worst Journey is where we discover what Cherry thought and felt. In a very few places I have even used his exact words, because they constituted a fact about him, or almost his exact words, because some phrase seemed irreplaceable. In short, it would have been impossible to write this book without his, yet Cherry wrote in the grip of strange passions that distorted his judgment. I even found points on which I concluded that Worst Journey was simply wrong. So I had to compromise. My Cherry writes what I believe he would have written had he been able to put certain obsessions aside, absorb the arguments that have continued to rage over the expedition to this day, and consider all evidence and all sources from the viewpoint of our own time. You might conclude that the result in your hands is a strange creature indeed, a fictional memoir for which the key source is a real memoir. But permit me to protest. This book is not fiction. Consider the analogy of how best to restore an old painting. Fiction is a bag of tools. I use them here to fill, as authentically and consistently as possible, the gaps on a historical canvas. At every point, I have tried to let the known facts guide me. At every point, my aim has been, like Cherry's, to paint a true picture of the past. Speaking of the past, it's important to understand that these events took place before the Great War of 1914-1918. We are taught today that digital technology is pretty important, or international terrorism, or global warming. But the impact of all these things has been trivial, so far at least, compared to the Great War, a conflict whose scale and savagery divides all before it from all after it like a great rift valley across the plain of time. Because of the Great War, the gulf separating us from the early 20th century is even wider than a hundred years suggests. It can be difficult enough to reach beyond the obvious things. The funny clothes, 
the stiff manners, the quaint assumptions, to what these men were like as individuals. When we get there, it can be harder still to believe how familiar, and at the same time how different from us, they seem. E.P. Thompson famously said that the business of the historian is to rescue the past from the enormous condescension of posterity. What he meant, I think, is that we owe it to the dead to take them as seriously as we take ourselves. Yet there are two sides to this metaphor of rescue. Scott and his men had something precious that we have lost. Worst Journey describes superhuman feats of courage and endurance. Above all, though, it describes men who performed these feats quietly, with a sense of humour, and without a shred of either self-pity or self-importance. That extraordinary spirit is what makes Cherry's book such a thrilling read. I hope I have captured a little of it in this recording. One day, perhaps, you will turn to Worst Journey itself, and then you can compare the words I have put in Cherry's mouth.